Our last talk is called Self-Direction and Structure After College, and our speaker is Ben Merkel. Ben Merkel is the president of New St. Andrews College and a fellow of theology. He holds a doctor of philosophy in Oriental Studies and a master's in Jewish Studies from Oxford University, England, and an MA degree in English Literature and a BS in Education. Yikes. All right. Way to go. Um, uh, he also studied theology at Greyfriars Hall, and he served as a minister of Christ Church Moscow. He previously served as a part-time campus minister uh, with CRF, and he's also the author of many books, and his wife, he and his wife, Becca, have five children, and he's deaf in one ear. So, please, welcome. Thank you. Probably not going to work. Let's see. All right. What's that? The microphone will not make you louder. It's just for looks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'll be I'll be louder than that then. Uh, let's let's go ahead and open with prayer then. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. I thank you for the chance to sit and consider this uh, stage of life. I pray for your blessing on everybody here that they be glorifying you with uh, real wisdom and practical insight into how you'd have them live and walk. I pray you'd also make us faithful to your word as we come to it now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So uh, I think Gabe actually gave a nice little segue at the end of that last session and talking about just introducing this idea that there's this, there's this weird uh, midlife crisis that seems to overtake uh, people so easily. Um, and the thing is, is that the seeds for that are actually right now. It's not really a midlife crisis, it's just a life crisis. It just happens to actually show up at a particular point, but the seeds for it are right now. So I want to be digging into that a little bit. Um, as you grow, as, as you grow up, you can, um, you can cultivate the habit of making a lot of pretty huge claims about the kinds of things uh, that you will do with your life and the kind of person that you will become. All right, think, think about that now. We have a tendency to, um, because your, your age and the fact that you are um, at the beginning of adulthood allows you to project all kinds of things into the future that you're going to accomplish and you're going to be. And growing up, uh, it's pretty common to actually make really uh, crazy bold claims about what you're going to be like and what your life will be like when actually you have no stinking clue how, how these things will play out. Um, but who's going to refute you, right? Because you're just projecting in the future and they can't make any counterclaims really. So, so um, you know, we'll, we'll think about the, the money that you're going to make um, in the next uh, 30 years. It's easy to project. This is the kind of salary that I'll be having. Um, young boys very early on like to decide the kind of car that they will be driving, you know, when they're in their, in their 30s. And it's funny how you get in the 30s and you suddenly realize all of your priorities are radically different because you're trying to put car seats into what will, what will not be the Ferrari that you thought you were going to have. But we like to project, you know, here's the car that I'm going to drive. Here's the health that I will maintain. Here's the life of travel and leisure that I will live. Um, or, and you can make it virtuous, right? It can't, it's not necessarily all fleshly. You have um, a, a lot of time you're projecting in the future the kind of husband that you will have, the kind of wife 
that you're going to marry, the sort of marriage they're going to put together, what your children will be like. And it's funny because you can sit in judgment on a bunch of other people because their actual children um, pale in comparison to your imaginary children, right? <laughs> in terms of obedience and cleanliness and hospitality. Oh, look at them. I mean, they're, they're really impressive. Um, and and we, so we sit in judgment on all these people because their lives are not living up to our imaginary lives that we've, in our, our mind, um, conjured up. Um, it can be inspired by godly ambition, or it can come from an ungodly lust and craving or an ungodly frustration from where you came from. You see, it could go either way. You could have a craving for something, or you can have a frustration for your current life. A lot of times, it's almost like a coping mechanism that you'll have when you're young and things are not going your way. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, ah, but when I'm in charge, this is how it will be. And so you project this alternative life just almost as like a solve uh, to how things are going wrong for you right now. <coughs> Excuse me who hasn't at some point while growing up gotten frustrated with how your parents were handling something <coughs> and said to yourself, when I grow up, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be all different. So, um, but then one day it happens. You finish college and this life that you've spent 21 years telling yourself uh, that you were going to live is now there for you to live. Right, And that's where you are now, is you're living the life that you'd been planning for yourself for so long. And it's like a vacation that you planned in great detail, and then all of a sudden now you're in it. And um, if you've ever done that, planned a vacation in great detail, and then suddenly been in it, one of the things you realize is it rarely goes the way you plan. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't ever really work out that way. Um, so you start to discover then that declaring that something will happen is a lot easier than making it happen. Um, I, you know, it's funny collecting these, these sorts of stories, but I, I remember friends from, you know, early marriage days and, and you know, they're, they're a few years into marriage with a, and a couple of kids. And they said, look, we, we had said back when we were dating, one of the things that they had really valued was travel, international travel. Both of them had done quite a lot of international travel. And they said, you know, when we, when we get married and have kids, our kids will know uh, London better than they'll know Spokane. I mean, that's important to us. Our kids will experience this life of travel. They'll, they'll know the world. They'll know London better than Spokane. And they're, after a few years in the marriage, they're laughing. They said, yeah, we achieved that just by never going to Spokane now. <laughs> <laughs> your, your reality starts to catch up with you. I, um, when I was uh, right, when I was um, about to get married, somebody gave me uh, some sort of financial planning sort of thing. I think it was a Larry Burkett uh, series of recordings about how to, you know, responsibly um, plan for the future. Um, it's kind of like a pre-Dave Ramsey thing. Anyhow, um, one of his things was your your financial goal ought to be that by the time you hit 40, to not be paying a mortgage anymore. Okay, you want to hit 40 no longer have a mortgage, which we totally nailed because we were renting when we hit 40. <laughs> uh, we, we did, we, we sold everything to move to England. And we, when we came back, like there was no chance of us owning with no mortgage at that point. So we were actually renting uh, at that point. Anyhow, so you have, you have these things that are like, this is what I will be. And then reality just has a, a rude way of just kind of slapping the snot out of you, right? And all, all of your little projections. I'm reminded of uh, 1 Kings 20. 
that great line from Ahab. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, oh, I'm sorry, I got to go back just a little bit. Um, so the king of Israel answered and said to him, tell him, let not one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Uh, let not one who puts on his armor boast like one who takes it off. You're, when you're putting on your fighting gear, don't talk as if you're the one who's already won the fight, right? When you're putting on the fighting gear is when you're getting ready to find out who will win. Um, after, when you're taking your gear off, that's when you know who has won. We spend a lot of time speaking as if we are people taking off the armor when we're actually still just putting it on. So, so you're in this stage now, I think, where, where reality and your um, projections are sort of colliding. And what's interesting is the, um, you would be surprised to find out how long you can make this stage last. Like it's um, because you can keep projecting those accomplishments into the future for quite a while. Like the first five years after college, yeah, those things didn't happen, but you still are in your 20s, you're spry, you know, you, there, there's so much room for these things to still happen. And you can keep projecting it into the future, assuming that at some point these things will come to pass. But what happens is if, there's some point where eventually you start to kind of notice the clock or the calendar and, and, and you start to realize, actually, um, I'm running out of room to project these things, right? And, and, and reality starts to kind of whisper into your ear that these things aren't ever actually going to happen. The, the car you thought you would drive, the life that you thought you were going to live, that you would project out, these things aren't actually going to happen. And that's where what Gabe was describing is that midlife crisis, where it's, it's, um, it seems to hit men, I think, harder than women for some reason. There's something to do with like the, the nature of male ambition, but that's not to say it doesn't hit women. I think it just hits them in a different way. Um, anyhow, you, you start to realize that these things aren't going to happen. And then things just start falling apart. You get it, you fall into this identity crisis and everything goes weird. Um, it's the quintessential midlife, cri midlife crisis, which seems to hit in two stage. First, you have the quintessential midlife crisis where you simply realize that your life trajectory is not ever going to lead to the things that you had first projected for yourself. And that's that weird 40 year old mark. There seems to be, in my mind, a second piece, which is when all the kids leave home um, and people start to feel like they have a window opening to a life uh, that, they, that they need to jump through, a window opening to another life. It's like they feel like this life didn't work, it didn't pan out, but as long as the kids are home, they feel kind of like they're anchored to it. And then when the kids leave, it's like the anchor leaves in some way. And this, this world that they've been hoping for and glimpsing through some window, they feel like they've got one shot to get it and they dive through the window and you'll see everything fall apart later on. It's weird, it's weird the way these, these failures kind of fall out and it's just really, really sad to see them all break up. And I know that you've all seen it happen around you. But the thing to notice here, and this is the thing that's really important, is that these are things that um, when they hit, they're debilitating. Like it's just devastating. When you see these things break up, when somebody craters at 40 and 50 and 60, 
it's just really sad to see that, that devastating breakup. But here's the thing. The sin that caused them is likely decades, decades before, long before. The thing that, that upended them when they were 45 was something that they began nursing along when they were 22, right? It's, it's long before. And so it's, it's funny to be speaking about midlife crisis to an age group of people that are just out of college. But honestly, this is the moment. This is the moment to begin getting ready for that and to begin addressing it and getting it straight in your life. Um, 1 Timothy 5. I have to be really delicate here because these are the pages that don't stay in my Bible. They all fall out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 524, here we go. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. You see, there's 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 the sin of, you know, the guy, the guy who's out, you know, snorting his cocaine and um, visiting strip clubs and whatnot. Like, we see it, all right? We get it, we see the problem that you've got. But those are not the problems that those of us that are um, that are deep in the church, those are not the ones that we're wrestling with. We have these kind of secret ones, these quiet ones, these little things in our heart, in our mind, our soul that eat at us and that we nurse along. And those are the ones that follow along later and show up later. And um, think of it this way. Um, I, um, right out of high school, I did uh, the Marine Corps Reserves and I was on in a reserve unit down in Boise and it was a tank unit. And we, so my weekends, we would go out and fire tank cannons. And you had to spend all of this time sighting in the, the main gun all the time. And one of the things you notice is you, when you're shooting a, 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 a M1A1, it's a 120 millimeter smoothbore cannon, you're going further than like the 100 yard rifle shot. I mean, you're going, you're going thousands of meters um, with this shot. And it was shocking to discover how slight of a little movement with the gun tube could send a round off by 10, 20, 30 meters down the road and make you miss your target completely. The, um, the heat of the sun during the day would cause the gun tube to droop just ever so slightly. I mean, it's a long gun tube and you wouldn't notice by the naked eye, no way but it was enough of a droop that it would send your shell way off. And so you're constantly having to um, bring your sights in and make sure you, your, your sight is laid dead on. And the reason is because when you are, um, when you're firing around over a thousand meters, the slightest little shift in this trajectory, it's multiplied over a long distance and it pulls it way, way, way off. And it's such an interesting, I think, example of what goes on in our life where there are some sins that you could blow your life up right now. Like I could come up with lots of ways you could blow your life up right now. But there are a lot of these little sins that we allow to sit in our heart and, and they're, they just pull us off a little bit and you don't notice it. And it's something you can nurse along for 10 years and 15 years, but at 20 and 25, it starts to eat at you and nag at you and pull you more and more sour. And you don't see it coming until it starts to just completely own your life and pull you way off target. 
that's why it's so important to take the time now to dig in and say, what am I sided in on? What is, what is, where is my life headed? What are the things that I prioritize? So in other words, your midlife crisis starts now. Um, how you order and direct your ambitions now has a massive impact on how you persevere in the race 20 years from now, right? You want to put the time in now. So um, your focus then. So obedience at this stage right now, or even maybe a little bit of repentance right now for goofy things that you allowed in your brain over the last five years, a little bit of that work now um, will lead to great, great, great blessing um, when you hit that 40-year mark. That does not have to be a midlife crisis. In the same way that, um, you know, uh, somebody, this was a discussion on the um, pastor lift serve and recently this, this discussion, this topic, and somebody pointed out, you know, um, people all tell you that you're, you've got the terrible twos waiting for you. Then when your kids hit two, it's going to be complete hell on earth. What's great though, is if you actually do one right, two is a lot of fun. It's not terrible. It's actually a complete blast. And the midlife crisis, instead of being a crisis can be a time of deep, deep sweetness. If you're doing the work now to give yourself a good foundation. So how can you be faithful now? Let me give you just a, 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 few, a few thoughts here. Um, first of all, um, this is, I, I'm ripping off of my wife's uh, grandmother's famous quote. She said that um, comparisons are odious. She's, this was uh, Bessie Wilson was notorious for saying comparisons are odious. Um, we have a tendency to live on the sidelong glance, to, to spend our life looking to the left and to the right and envying and coveting was happening on either side of us. And that is odious. It's poison for your soul. It will, uh, it will mess you up over the long term and turn you sour on life because you are, you will find yourself worshiping something that God is not going to give you. And it will make you uh, twisted and sour on the inside. Know that you have as, um, I just gave a talk at the NSA Disputatio uh, this afternoon. Um, and so you can, I think that'll be posted later, but this is it in a nutshell. And that is that you have God's infinite attention on you right here. And we constantly think that God's gaze is directed the way man's gaze is. That is wherever there's loud applause, that's where God is looking. Wherever there is a lot of, you know, Facebook, um, likes. That is where God is watching. We think that God follows our attention and he's looking where the rest of humanity is looking. That's not how God works. He, you have his infinite attention on you where you are now, and you need to grow a sense of deep satisfaction, knowing that regardless of whether, whether other people see your obedience, God is seeing it now. And that you don't need to look left or right, but you need to find deep satisfaction with what you have from God now. Um, it's interesting. I noticed this this morning in reading Ephesians 5 on my Bible reading challenge schedule. Um, in, in Ephesians 5, um, there's this little comment that it just jumped out at me because Paul does the same thing in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, he said, he's listing a list of sins. And he says, um, in, the, in the list of sins, he says covetousness. And each of those sins he just lists, but covetousness, he has this little quick commentary. He says, covetousness 
which is idolatry. And then he goes on. And then in Ephesians 5, he does the same thing. And he's describing different kinds of sinners. And he says, coveters. And then he says, which are idolaters. And, and then he goes on. And it's funny that both times he needs to stop and tell you, listen, when you allow yourself to covet, that is, when you allow yourself to sit there and look to the left and to the right and wish that you had what other people have, that you are letting idolatry come into your life, which is you letting your eyes dwell on something other than the living God, right? Your, your gaze is supposed to be to God, looking for him to satisfy all that you have, and you're looking at man-made, um, man-made dead things, and you're, and you're giving them a power in your life and an authority in your life that they should not have. Don't be an idolater. Be somebody who is looking to God. Don't let yourself look left or right in that sidelong glance. Um, the other thing that I would say is really, really important that you, that you learn to do is learn to turn a profit on what God has actually given you instead of on what he has given to other people. This is just another version of the sidelong glance. But I noticed like in, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, remember you, you have the, the, the master who gives his servants each an, a, a different amount of talents. And each one is given a different amount. And they're told, go out, um, go out and do something with this. And when he comes back, you find out two things. First of all, that he expected you to do something with it. He expected you to do something with it. And second of all, it didn't matter how much he gave you. He expected you to do something with it. Okay. The guy who was given 10 talents goes out and earns 10 more. And he says, fantastic. The guy who was given five talents goes out, earns five more. And he says, that is, that is great. The guy who's given one talent goes and buries it in the ground. Of all the people he was entrusted with the least, he had, he had the least amount of work to do, the least amount of fear, you know, in trying to do something with this one talent. And he hid it. And he's the one who the, the guy said, the master says, take that talent away, get rid of him. All right. You, it does not matter if you were giving, if you were given much, go out and do something big. If you say, but I wasn't like that. I was just given this little thing here. That is not a reason for you to think that you are not supposed to turn a profit on this. So you, you, you want to avoid the sidelong glance, and then you want to look at what God has actually given you and say, what he has given me, I'm going to turn a profit on this, whatever it is. And maybe he's only given you hardship and heartache. You can turn a profit on hardship and heartache, right? You can do something with that. So you want to look at what God has actually given you and figure out how do I turn a profit on that? Let me give you um, three sort of other little nudges as you think about what this looks like um, in your life. First of all, um, as you're looking to be fruitful with the life that God has given you, I think you should, you, we should be brutal in our um, self-assessment of what we're actually getting done, right? Be brutal in your self-assessment. Be hard on yourself as you evaluate whether you're getting, actually getting things done. Um, let me jump around in Proverbs for just a moment. I think of, oh, 
it's because I'm looking at the wrong, wrong verse. There we go. Proverbs 12, 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. That one is so profound to me because I particularly, I like to use this one with uh, freshmen at NSA. It's like a really, there's a really important lesson here. And that is that um, particularly young men, um, guys think that because once, one time, somewhere when they were in high school, they had a basketball coach that blew the whistle and made them run so many times that they throw up, they threw up, right? That because that happened back in high school, that means that they are innately a hard worker, right? This one time I had a summer job where I had a boss who was super rigorous and made me go and go and go. And he was so mean and I had to work so hard. So when you say, you know, you need to be a diligent person, I know I am, okay? And what they don't get is they don't see the difference between working when somebody has a whistle or a whip or whatever it is standing over you and working when there's nobody there, okay? It's a huge, huge difference. And we are really deluded in our, in our own minds because we can remember a time in our life when we were made to work. Like it's, it's as if like the fact that you once got sweaty just went to your head right? Like, and you believe like, I'm, in, I'm capable of hard, hard labor. Well, here's the thing. Of course, you're capable of hard labor. Any old slave is capable of hard labor when there's a master standing over them, driving them, driving them, driving them. It says here, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Any lazy person can sweat. What you want to be is the person who can make yourself sweat when there is no boss in the room, when there's no master, no ruler, no coach, no teacher, nobody there, and you still know how to set your alarm and get up without hitting snooze and work hard, okay? So, so go back in. I said, be, be brutal with yourself when you, when you evaluate your ability to get things done. We, um, especially guys, we really can... Um, tell ourselves a lot, of, um, a lot of deceitful lies about what kind of virtues we have, all right? You need to step back and say, am I just shining myself on? Am I really that person, right? Can I make myself go even when the, when the uh, master isn't there? Remember in Proverbs 6 when he says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Why? Because the ant knows how to work with no boss over him. Knows, the ant knows how to work when it's... Um, when the weather is nice, when there is plenty of food, the ant still goes to work, okay? The rest of us, we wait, that's when we snooze, that's when we vacation, and then we work when things get tough. All right, um, and then in Proverbs 26, sorry, verse 13. The lazy man says there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I still remember coming home once when I was in college and finding my roommate at the crack house who had um, fallen asleep on the couch with his hand in the bag of Doritos. 
And we, we taped this verse to his hand. When he woke up, he did not appreciate it at all. But he, he, he had literally uh, buried his hand in the bowl and been too weary to bring it to his mouth. Um, it, anyhow, though, I, I love how it starts off where a lazy man says, there's a lion in the road, right? Um, you, you need to understand, and this is a really important thing that has happened, but a lot of people have not realized that it has happened. When you lived at home, you had parents who had a natural burden and a natural affection and duty towards you um, to let you know when you were screwing up badly. And you had people who had an actual burden on them to fight through your excuses, to take your excuses and knock them to the ground and get you all the way to your real self and take care of the things that you were messing up on. When you leave that situation, you need to realize that you no longer have anyone in your life who has a natural duty to, um, to knock that kind of garbage out of your hands, okay? There, there's nobody in your life who, if you are telling yourself, there's a lion in the road, that's why I can't get this done, all right? There was a time when your dad had an obligation to come in and say, shut up and go take the garbage out. You're, you're being a weenie, okay? There, there was a time when he was there. He's not there anymore. And you have lots of people around you who probably care and will offer a little something. But if you, if you surround yourself with a force field of excuses, most of the people around you do not have the time, the inclination, or the desire to sit and try to get through all of those excuses and confront you. It's, you have, a, you have an obligation to drop them yourself, okay? Um, so so uh, you should know, you, you don't have anybody in your life that, can, that has this burden to confront you. It's your job to be brutal with yourself about the excuses in your life. And a lot of times, these excuses, these are what set us up for that crisis down the road. Okay? You, you've surrounded yourself with lies and eventually reality catches up with you. You want to be honest with yourself right now. Also, be, um, so be ruthless in, or be brutal in your assessment of what you're actually getting done. The second one was be ruthless with yourself in putting to death fleshly comparisons. Be ruthless with yourself in putting to death fleshly comparisons. I think of the parable in Matthew 20 of the workers in the vineyard the workers in the vineyard. That is such a mean parable. It really is. I mean, read that one and let it sink in a little bit because you, you, you have the scenario is, um, well, no, no, no. Let me, let me just, let's, I'll do like a modern English version. I'm going to, um, I'm going to make it relevant, the parable relevant. Okay. I want you to imagine that, um, tomorrow, no, not tomorrow, it's Friday. On Monday, when you show up at work, you happen to walk into the boss's office, the boss is not there, and you see the, the payroll laying on the desk in front of you, and you realize that you have been in this position for five years, You've, um, you came with all kinds of qualifications, and you see the guy right next to you who has been here three months has half the qualifications, half the experience, and seems to get half the work done that you get done. No, let's say one-fifth of the work that you're able to get done in the day, 
that's what this person gets done in one day. And you look and you see they're paid four times as much as you. Okay. Let's say you're, you're being paid 40 grand and this person's being paid 160. All right. Now, okay. How do you process that? Okay. Is this unfair? Is this unfair? Are they wronging you? Are they wronging you? Now, you, when you signed this contract, they told you, here's the work we expect you to get done. Here's the pay that we will pay you. This is the deal. Do you agree to that? You said, yes, I do. That seems fair. And you signed the thing and nothing in that contract has changed. All that happened was you saw what somebody else is getting. You saw what somebody else is getting and you suddenly went, this is unfair. This is not right. Okay. Is it, is it really go back, go back to that um, parable of the vineyard workers, because that's exactly what happens in that parable is you have people who come in at the end of the day, work for just one small fraction and they're, and they're paid as if they had worked the whole day when these people work the whole day. And they say, this is not fair. And the, the master says, no, 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 let me take you back to your contract. This is exactly what you agreed to do. We, we live constantly looking left and right and comparing ourselves to what other people get. But when we do that, here's the thing. We never, ever notice the people that we are getting a much better deal than them. We only notice uphill, right? We only notice the people that are getting a better deal than us. If, you know, just... Um, travel for a little bit and see all the different lives that you could have in, in various other countries, see the life that you could have had. All right. And then say, this is unfair, right? My SUV, this is unfair. My, you know, the, the life that you live, you live a life of opulence. I mean, we, we have an incredible life, but we're, we're constantly pulled left and right. This is where I see um, people really going going um, wrong and going sour over time is when they cannot be content with what God has given to them and they can't find grace in what God has given to them. And, and I would point out that this is all of, all of this. I'm describing all of this in this like really mean way. I'm like saying, make sure you get punched in the face in this way. Make sure you get punched in the face in this way. Be mean to yourself here. Be mean to yourself here. All I'm saying is, is be ready for grace, be ready for mercy, be ready to be somebody who is not clinging to your rights, be ready to be somebody who's not clinging to the things that you want to claim that belong to you, be ready for God's goodness, his mercy to you, his, instead of his paycheck, be ready for his unmerited favor, his mercy, because it's a much, much sweeter place to live. And then in the last thing, be very ambitious in what you purpose to get done with the talents that God has given you. Um, be, don't be um, discontent with what God has given you because he might give you a very small little thing, but he does expect you to be fruitful with that very small little thing. Think of the parable, uh, or not the parable, think of the story of the widow's two mites, okay? So you have, you have a, a row of people coming into the temple and you have this man who has his millions and is ready to, to give his $10,000 gift. And then you have this one woman who has her five bucks and that's all she's got. And she puts the five bucks in. 
All right, in terms of these people, it's the opposite of the parable of the talents where the man who had 10 talents whiffs it and the one who got one talent or even like one one hundredth of a talent walks in and manages with that small little um, bit of blessing that she's been given from God. She manages to play it just right. She gives the whole thing. And in that whole scenario, you line everybody up and God says, that lady right there, the one that none of you noticed, that nobody saw, she is the one who is nailing it. She is the one who is living that faithful life. So it is, it's not about how much you've been given. It's about how are you going to play what you've been given? How are you going to be faithful with what you've been given? So be ambitious in what you purpose to get done with the talents that God has given you. Uh, remember the two, two mites and know that it works both ways. You don't get an excuse because your bank account is small. Right? You don't say, well, he only gave me one talent, so I'm not expected to do much. But you do get the promise that God notes your efforts, no matter how small your means. No matter what you've been given, you've been given a hand that God expects you to play right, and God is ready to glor be glorified by and to bless you for playing it right. Okay, so those are the different ways I think that you can purpose now to keep your, your gun tube, your cannon, um, on site so that it fires downrange and you have much faithfulness throughout a long life of serving him. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for how gracious you are to us. We thank you for the gift of your son, for the give, forgiveness of all of our sins that we have through him. We thank you for the gift of your spirit and the power of your spirit to hold us, preserve us, and sanctify us for that great day when we can hear the well done from you. Praise things in your son's name. Amen.